So how many of you are working through the book and doing the exercises? And how many of you found the exercise this week difficult? Okay. For, for some of us, I think it was more difficult than others. And I want to dig into that this morning. The street on which I grew up backed up to a large woods and overgrown fields that centered on an old farmhouse that was in the last stages of decay. The house was slated for demolition and, and the fields and woods for residential development. Now, this was the cool part for us as kids. Nobody was riding herd on the property, and it became a stunningly sensational playground and venue for young imaginations run wild. Here's the capper. An elderly neighbor told us that the original owner of the property had buried valuables on it, translated treasure by 10-year-old minds, and he said some of it was supposedly stolen money inherited from a thieving ancestor. That was all it took to set us off on that summer's adventure. Our, our imaginations bubbled with, with the thought of stuff we'd acquire and hold with our treasure when we found it. And we were utterly confident we'd find it. Over the next ten weeks, we cratered the yard around this decaying house looking for it. The surface of the moon was smoother than that yard by the end of the summer, right? But, but suddenly the summer was over. School was beginning again. We had absolutely nothing to show for our obsessive pursuit of something that didn't exist. We lamented the games we hadn't played, bikes we didn't ride, the pool that we hadn't frequented. It wasn't by accident that Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Right? He goes on in more detail, and, and I want you to say it with me, the memory verse is at the bottom of the page in your bulletin. No one, two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And the address? Right. You can't serve two masters. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Our hearts, our minds, our strength had been invested in a half acre of dirt because what we thought it would bring us. In the end, the prize didn't produce the promised treasure, and that lured us into a massive investment of time and energy that was utterly wasted. Right? But here's the funny thing about this. You and I were created to be hardwired to desire treasure. Okay? I want you to hear that again. You heard me correctly. Our hearts and minds are designed so that we'd be treasure seekers. 
The Westminster Catechism begins, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Westminster didn't come to this conclusion out of thin air, but through deep reflection on the whole of Scripture. The psalmists say it this way, In your presence, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. Or, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing else on earth I desire but you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Check out Psalm 42. We read it earlier. As the deer pants for flowing streams, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. In, in Psalm 63:1, the psalmist continues, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Psalm 37 36, 7 and 8, quenches that thirst and satisfies our hunger for treasure in this way. How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 34, 8 invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Knowing all of this, Graham Kendrick was moved to sing, Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you. There is no greater thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. So why can't our hearts rest secure in the only treasure that truly satisfies? Our dilemma is that the, treasures, the treasure we're designed to seek is the one that our forebears rejected in the fall. God. Ever since we've been pursuing lesser treasures, we give them weight and value and trust that rightfully belongs to God. Remember, we were designed to find our identity, our purpose, our value, our security in God. But when we decided to exalt ourselves, our pursuit of those things could no longer find their satisfaction in God, but we're, we're pulled off track. And we've been trying to quench eternal thirsts and eternal hungers with finite things ever since. But to our dismay, they fail us time and time again, and they don't deliver on their promises. In particular, money's grip on us, on our hearts, on our minds, is insidiously strong. Which is why Jesus speaks of money issues more than any other single subject. Note Luke 12, 15, Jesus warns us, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Avarice, that's an old fashioned word for greed, but, but, it's, but it's greed on steroids, right? Avarice is about wanting to have things and hold them 
and not let go. We're going to hang on to them and hang on to them and hang on to them because of what they th- we think they provide for us. Avarice is both the love of money and excessive anxiety about it. Right? Paul's equally blunt when he cautions us. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. First Timothy 6, 9. He says twice that avarice, greed, is a form of idolatry. In Colossians 3, 5 and Ephesians 5, 5. Remember, idolatry is giving something undeserved power and authority in your life. How did Jesus say it in the passage we just read? It's either one or the other. Earthly treasure or heavenly treasure, right? God or money. A generous eye or a stingy one. As I grew up, I I thought that money's temptation had faded for me. My great-grandfather was in the the furniture and hardware business. After the stock market crashed in 1929, he was still worth over $3 million on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 2018 finds those dollars valued at $42,998,370. The old guy did all right for himself, right? But great-granddaddy had learned a, a value from his father. He learned this. Each generation needs to make its own way in the world. And he believed that money could be a problem for succeeding generations. And as a result, when he died, he left enough to comfortably care for my great-grandmother during her lifetime but he gave the rest away, every last cent. Okay? He knew money could be a curse as well as a blessing. And he was worried about what money would do to his sons, right? And to their children. An odd thing happened in all this, though, in my relationship with money. Although I learned to live loosely with money, the need for the security that money seems to provide morphed into something that on the surface appeared to be less consuming, less threatening. I didn't find my security in cash. I found it in stuff. Although my family, by design, didn't pass on unspent cash to succeeding generations, they passed on stuff. So art and furniture created and made by members of the family in years gone by, a mission clock that was one of the two family pieces to survive the collapse of my mother's side of the family in the Great Depression, silver, crystal, china, each with an accompanying story, were handed down from generation to generation. A funny thing happened. 
I found my identity in the stuff. I found my security in the stuff. I even found a bit of purpose in the stuff because, after all, I had to be a conservator of the family heritage and the stories that had been passed down to me. You see how sneaky this is, right? Do you hear it? Idolaters do three things with their idols. They love them, they trust them, they surrender their lives to them and obey them. In short, you serve them. It isn't just each of us as individuals who struggle with this. The body of Christ, the church, has a stunning money problem as well. In 2017, the total personal income of Christians worldwide equaled close to $53 trillion. That's 53 with 12 zeros after them, right? If we, the church, tithed our income, we would have provided $5.3 trillion for God's kingdom work in the world. Last year, total giving by Christians was $900 billion to Christian causes. Of that total, $360 billion was collected by churches. $540 $540 billion by parachurch and other religious institutions. In total, Christians gave a bit less than 2% of their wealth to serve God's kingdom purposes and gave less than 1% directly to the church. Somewhere along the line, we lost sight of the fact that it's all God's. You and I are God's. The things we have come as gifts, the fruit of his hand. Somewhere along the line, we lost sight of of Psalm 24.1. How does it phrase it? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. We've got a problem with money, with stuff. This weekend, while I was out working with a congregation at a retreat center north of Marengo, Ohio, on Friday and Saturday, the washer went out. I was still wrestling with this message last night. My study opens into the laundry area. I'd work a few minutes and find my attention drawn to the washer that has a load of clothes in it, but it's, it's stuck, locked, right? And I'd start thinking about how I was going to solve this problem. Okay. Look, I'm not saying that household appliances are bad things. I mean, after all, I don't think you want me doing ministry in clothes that haven't been washed for ages. You know, and the fact is, when washers work, they save you time, right? But, but my life is far too often consumed by stuff. In the same way, money in itself is not a bad thing. But look what happens. It far too easily gets its hooks into us. And what happens with our motivations isn't pretty. So 
So, here's the good news. Kathy will tell you, she's my witness this morning, I'm getting better at letting go of stuff a bit at a time, right? But there are places where I still struggle. Kathy knows that I'm wired to learn. What is, in one way, a really good thing has become its own problem. Um, you, you see, knowledge is a way I find security in a changing and unpredictable world. God help me, and he is, but it's really hard for me to let go of books. The shelves are full. They're overflowing boxes. I, I confess to you this morning that I have an idol, right? I have an avarice problem. So... If you don't think that's the case, right? I've, I've got all these really cool things. I, I have the 
This also is vanity. Ecclesiastes 5.10. Money is a potently powerful thing. It can either place us at risk or it can be used by God to reveal the need and state of our hearts and draw us close again to Him. Only then will our motivations be transformed as we use money and it will just be money. Okay? You and I are going to interact with it. The question is, will that contact be a blessing or a curse? We've got to be mindful. Satan uses some really slick tools to make us vulnerable to money idolatry. He uses ingratitude because an ungrateful, an ungrateful heart is not at rest. So practicing gratitude on a regular, daily basis for large things and small ones helps us put money down into its place. Need. Most of us think broadly 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 about what we need, right? But the fact is, most of what we think we need, we don't. We load our wants into the need category, right? When we're honest about what we really need, air, water, food, clothing, shelter, we can properly tame our desire. Discontent. Since, since I'm not grateful and have misdiagnosed my needs, I'm consistently discontented, right? I can't get contented. I struggle to be satisfied. I, if only, all the time. Have you ever done that, right? If only I fill in the blanks, right? When we find our contentment in God's person and presence, we can slay the dragon of discontent and know peace and rest. Envy. When you're not thankful, and when you're convinced you deserve more, you're going to need things you don't have. You're going to be discontented when you don't have them. And you begin to look over the fence and envy what your neighbor has that you don't. And you become foolish over your use of money and self-oriented in your decision-making regarding it. More on this in just a moment. So how do we find freedom from this deep, rooted, long-established idol. Jesus had it right. No one can serve two masters. Which is why there's this amazing verse that I know you have memorized in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, He what? He sent His only Son. Why? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Because, because the love of money and, and, the, and the false idol that it is will lead us to death in the end. It will not give life. Right? 
Jesus is the answer to our bondage. The psalmist said, God, you open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Psalm 145, 16. Think how incredibly open God's hands are and have been to us. He opened them to humiliation and death on a cross as he was stretched out high on a cross brace of wood before the people. Romans 8 reinforces this. I want you to hear it again. I know you know it. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's why Jesus came. That we might have victory over those things that are finite, that are not life-giving, but that would claim our hearts and minds and spirits and consume our lives. Paul goes on, he says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we find our satisfaction in God, when He becomes our treasure and pleasure, we know the use of of the monetary and other resources God has entrusted to us in a way that is a blessing, not a curse. So, Tom, this one's for you. You remember back a little while ago when we got in trouble musically, right? But the Rolling Stones had it right so many years ago. We struggled to find satisfaction. No matter how hard we try, it eludes us. The dictionary defines satisfy in this way. It says to make content, to give enough to, to fulfill the wishes of, to gratify to the fullest degree. That's first definition. Second, to free from doubt, uncertainty, or suspense, to convince. Second definition. To pay in full, to discharge. Third definition. To expiate and make atonement for. Fourth definition. We are a people who sometimes are difficult to satisfy, right? The inescapable truth is we're only going to know satisfaction when we rest in our relationship with God. Genesis 1 and 2 make paint a vivid picture of our identity and therefore our satisfaction being found in God, being rooted in trust in God's sovereignty, direction, and love and equipping, and on and on and on. When we choose, when we chose in Genesis 3 to find those apart from God, everything deteriorated. It all fell apart. But God in His grace not only desires to satisfy the needs, the needs of His children, He also provides the means. We were created for relationship with God, but broke relationship as we decided to form ourselves in our own fallen sinful images. Yet God, out of His steadfast love and mercy, sent His Son to be with us. Isaiah 7.14, John 1.14, when we would not be with Him. 
Remember again the definitions of, sacri- of satisfy. In Jesus Christ, we again discover our contentment. First definition. As we find a healthy, God-breathed balance in life and all things, we are freed from doubt and uncertainty. Second definition about who we are and what we were made for. We can live confident that the price has been paid to secure our freedom from bondage of sin. Third definition. We rest secure because Christ made amends for our sinful rebellion before God. Fourth definition. With and in matter. When it comes to knowing lasting, true satisfaction. Unless God is with us, we'll never be able to find ourselves and our satisfaction in Him. To be satisfied with means our satisfaction comes in proximity to, in association or in harmony with God. To be satisfied in means that satisfaction originates and occurs within the bounds of God's presence as we are surrounded by and wholly contained in Him. Psalm 1715 points to the truth that we were created not only in relationship with God, but to find satisfaction in God. As for me, I'll behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. God is with us through Jesus Christ. As we are with God and more and more find ourselves in God, we will know true satisfaction. It also implies that God's desires will become ours in increasing measure. Money, when used rightly, gives us glimpses of the goodness of God. When Kathy and I were building the house, the bank drove us crazy because they dragged out the approval process for the loan forever. Right. And we got to a point where we were having $24,000 worth of logs for the cabin portion and, and windows and other stuff with it that were being delivered. And I needed to have a check for $24,000 in my hand and I didn't have it. And Kathy asked friends to pray, and I got a call the morning that the logs were being delivered. And I went down to McDonald's at the junction of 41 and 64, and a friend of ours, Pookie, met me. And I got out of the car, and I said, what do you need? Because she wouldn't tell me on the phone. She said, she hands me a check for $24,000. She says, I want to help you out. I said, Pookie, I can't do that, right? This, this isn't the planet and world I live on. People don't hand you unsecured money, right? She says, well, I trust you. You can pass back when the mortgage is approved. But I couldn't live there. I made her go into McDonald's, and we got the manager and, and one of the workers to sign a promissory note that I wrote on a McDonald's napkin, and we all signed it. Money gives us glimpses of the goodness of God when we use our resources in ways that honor Him. Money also reveals what rules our hearts. That's this week's exercise. Kathy knows I was still scrambling around this morning to find enough things to part with to, uh, to satisfy the task. 
Money lays bare the temptations and dangers that lurk in the world out there and, 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 and would, would pull us out of God's designed path. Pull us out of the goodness of His will, out of the, the wonder of His presence. Money allows us to respond to the needs of others. One of the most wonderful times we had was when we were able to take in a friend who was homeless and, and help him pick up the pieces of his life and return to independence. Money also connects us to the larger work of God's kingdom in ways that surprise and amaze and delight us when we invest. So how do you know? How do you know what are the criteria by which you evaluate your use of the resources God's entrusted to you. We don't frequently look at Matthew 25, 1 through 46 this way, but there are three stories told by Jesus. The first is the story of the ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom to come for the wedding. They each have lamps. And do you remember the story? Five of the virgins waiting for the bridegroom to arrive, have lamps with what? Oil. They're filled. They're ready to go. Five of them have empty lamps. The bridegroom comes. They're scrambling around trying to find oil because the party's about to start and they're shut out. The, the, the second story, 14 through 31, is a story about talents, right? And how the talents are used in, in, in honor and service of the king. The third story, 31 through 46, speaks about the least of these. Do you remember? The folks say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and needing clothing and in prison and on and on? And here's the really rich piece. The Lord says, when you did it to the least of these. Right? What are the criterion for how you're using your resources? Does it display godly wisdom? Right? Are you living prepared for the coming of the bridegroom? Because I'm telling you, he could show up here and now. And what would he say? Are you living a life that is fruitful by kingdom measures? That is, are you making disciples... Mature disciples who will make mature disciples. Third, are your uses of money displaying the compassion of Jesus Christ? Right? Concern for the least of these. And you're doing it. It's so ingrained in, in, in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit that it's second nature and you don't think about it, right? Because these folks had no idea when they were caring for the least of these, that they were serving Jesus. When that happens, when that happens, then you know that you're not serving money, but that you've tamed the monster. You've taken the idol off its throne. And money 
is now serving the one it should serve. Almighty God, as you find your satisfaction in Him. Praise team, if you'd come up. This is the table of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a table for people who cling to the wrong things for love and approval, for security and identity and purpose and more. This is the table where we find satisfaction for our deepest needs, right? This is the table where we get to drink deeply of Jesus' grace and feast richly on the Father's love. All of this for this purpose, that we might live freely and fully to his glory and honor him in large ways and small throughout the nitty-gritty of our days. Lord, Lord, we need your table. We need your table. If you join with me as we bow before God in prayer and prepare our hearts, Father, we are so thankful that for people who so struggle to find satisfaction in you, you meet us with mercy and love and restoration. And so, Father, as we come here today, lift from us the burden of our guilt and restore us to your image. Right? Father, as, as, as we come to your table this morning, do what only you can do. And as bread is broken and wine is shared, astonish us with your presence as you meet us with your grace and make us one, heart, mind, and spirit, body, and soul. And make us one, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Savior for this purpose, Lord, that we might live to your glory. We pray and ask it in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, Amen.